0: Hello beautiful people, my guest today is Cody Sanchez and Cody is a former journalist, a former finance worker and a current entrepreneur who focuses on investing and creating content and her newsletter Contrarian Thinking is for people who want to think critically in a world that sometimes does not want us to think that way. This conversation was wide ranging. We talked about psychedelics. We talked about weed. We talked about how Substack removed her, her newsletter. We talked about what notes she uses in her phone to remind herself of important tasks. We talked about why her... Partner being a navy former Navy SEAL has really impacted her. Wide ranging conversation filled with knowledge bombs left and right. I really think you guys are gonna get something out of this episode. And if you do, let me know on Twitter at Hey Danny I'm also on Instagram now, same handle at Hey Danny Miranda, so you can follow me there. And These all get posted on YouTube as well if you prefer the video version. Thank you, as always, for listening. And without further ado, this is my conversation with Cody Sanchez. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. Cody, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. I've been inter—I've been listening to interviews of you nonstop for the past week, and so it's finally so great to, to chat.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: So I'd love to start off with Carmelita Gutierrez. Who is Carmelita Gutierrez?
1: Good research. Um, so she was one of the, I think, you know, you, you come across people in your life that are um, a pivot stone, right? Somewhere where your life could have gone one way and it went another. And she would be one of my pivot stones. I was actually, I was a journalist along the U.S.-Mexico border for some time, writing about human trafficking and drug smuggling, some of the, you know, things that most people at 19 or 20 probably are not embedded in and seen firsthand. And we wrote this one story called Generation Abandoned about um, elderly citizens getting left at the border as they couldn't make the border crop scene or they get separated from their families and Carmelita was one of the sort of main areas of focus in the story she was one of the the key players and she had been left along the U.S. Mexico border um decades uh, had been separated from her family and was suffering from dementia couldn't quite remember you know who her grandkids were or who her teddy bear was um she would get the, the names mixed up and um She changed a lot for me because we won a bunch of awards for writing this story about her and sort of breaking this phenomenon. But when I came back to give some of the awards and some little cash prizes and stuff to people at the the location, um, she basically asked me a question that I was not prepared for at 20, which was, you know, this is amazing now, Cody, that so many people know about us. And look, look, my picture's in the newspaper. Um, So when are you going to help us find our families? Like, when are you going to fix it? And I was like, oh man, um, you know, we really can't. Like I write the stories, we give, bring awareness, but like we can't actually get personally involved. That's what journalists are supposed to be. We're supposed to bring awareness and then step back. And um, and I realized that that didn't feel that good for me. And so that was the moment where I decided that I didn't want to be a journalist for the rest of my life.
0: how did you get to know her and her story?
1: You know, we spent, that was in a town called Agua Prieta um, and it was South of the Arizona border. And we worked with a nonprofit there. Um, call it was run by my friend Gil Gillenwater, who's an amazing human. He would be a great person to have on your podcast. He knows the Dalai Lama. He's traveled throughout the world. He does this like bicycle ride through Copper Canyon, and he started a nonprofit called Rancho Felice. And Rancho Felice uh, is a nonprofit in the belief that we should all give a hand up, not a hand out, and so. He had this nonprofit where he built houses and communities and schools all throughout Agua Prieta, But the people who worked in them didn't get them for free; they had to work for them. So they would go, you know, uh, build the next person's house for getting their house, and they would go work in the school for getting their kids to go to the school. And um, and so he gave me one guide who was my guide through Alapareda as we were looking for stories around the border. And um, and this guide actually helped us find this one derelict um, sort of. Old folks' home, I guess you could call it, where Carmelita was. And we visited, you know, I don't know, dozens of them and then found her story and she was willing to talk to us about it at length, as, as many of them were not.
0: Were you spending a lot of time with elderly people while you were finding her story?
1: Yeah, we were spending a lot of well, it would depend. We would sometimes not get past the caretakers. Um, you know, we would sometimes not get past police when we were, you know, asking about it or border patrol on both sides. Um, but then yes, you know, we would interview, I mean, we probably interviewed 25, 50 different, uh, individuals and we, we tried to include pieces of all of their stories, um, that would let us,
0: Mm. you know, it's interesting because you're, Today you're so proud of yourself for being able to think critically and ask good questions and I'm curious if that skill was first forged in the journalism world than in Mexico.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um I think one of the if I could have my kids do two things um it would be to join the debate club really young, to learn to get really comfortable with debating ideas, to have strong opinions loosely held, and to be able to to look an idea kind of like a math equation and say, like, does this actually make sense? Does it stand up to reason? And the second one would be to have some form of journalism, where you're going to try to not give opinion, that's supposed to be editorial, ism, uh, but to go and discover truth, which was what journalism used to be, and report the truth in an unbiased perspective, or even better yeah, both sides of the coin. And um, so I think, you know, as an investor, it's maybe one of the skills I'm most thankful for that took a while to still listen to my gut on, but is so important to ask the right questions.
0: Yeah, I'm sure we'll get into the investing, but does it bother you today that the... Journalism that you see on the news isn't unbiased reporting and instead it's it's clear bias coverage.
1: Yeah, I think it's really sad. I, I saw a little bit of foresight of that when I was in school, which was another reason I decided I didn't want to, to continue into journalism. Um, you know, the problem is that um the mechanisms in which you know we we consume the media, there needs to be a balance of being interesting. And also being informative. And what I find now is today there's a lot of informative news that's horribly boring. And then there's a lot of non informative, polarizing news that's really interesting. Or even if not interesting, it's aggressive and in your face and get, catches you at the headline and riles you up and makes you mad. And I think Jack Butcher had a really good line, which is like, um, you know, your, uh, your anger or your irritation is their profit, something to that degree. And I think that that's true. And we just have to remember that with the media, um, that they're not paid in the way that my media company is run, which is that users pay us for premium subscriptions. But instead, they're paid by advertisers for as many eyeballs as possible. Who cares if you get value out of it? Just somebody look at what I'm selling, right? And that's why we are the way that we are today.
0: When you set up contrarian thinking, did you have that idea in mind that you wanted to go that structure?
1: When I first started it, I just was, I was a bit perplexed that we were losing the ability to debate, right? I, I feel like that's one of the core things that we as humans, especially in the United States can do is that we can have this competition of ideas. And if we can allow for that, um, then our lives become richer, ideas become better, we become wealthier, so many things. Um, and during the pandemic, I was seeing all of this anger and everybody knows the answer to everything and there's no interest. There's just, you know, shoving information at one or the other. So that's why I actually started. It was, I just thought, Hey, I want to have an interesting conversation with humans and I'm going to share ideas and I want you to push back on them. And then since then, it's become exactly that. Sort of my idea is we want to awaken minds by pushing on them, by pulling on them, by making them slightly uncomfortable. And then we want to free bank accounts because if we can have financial freedom, then we can get all the way to philosophical freedom, which means that you can think the way you want when you feel comfortable enough to live the way that you want. And that was the goal of contrarian thinking. So we try to free bank accounts so that we can free minds.
0: What's something that in the past... I don't know, year, someone's pushed back on you at, and you've said, oh, that's a really good idea. And I didn't look at that that way.
1: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, all the time. Um, but let me think of one of the most, um, you know, challenging ones. I think the the most interesting ones are the, when they totally sway your perspective wholly, um, like, for instance, we were having a conversation the other day on the death penalty, which is you know very contentious. And there were two people that were on both sides of the coin. And I realized I don't really have a strongly held belief. I'm not against the death penalty. I'm not for the death penalty. I don't think about it that much, to be honest. Um, and uh, and what was fascinating was to hear both sides of the coin. And I think what it taught me in that regard is that it's nuanced. There's probably not just yes or no, there's probably some degrees of both. Um, so I thought that was an interesting one because the guy who was for the death penalty actually convinced the guy who was not for it, that there was maybe some reasons to have it. Uh, and that would be a super counterculture idea, right? Like you wouldn't probably want to say that on a podcast publicly if that was was your intent. So that, that was one. And then, I mean, some of the ideas that I've changing rapidly on is, I don't know if you've read the book Sovereign Individual, um, but I've reread it now a couple of times. And I never would have thought that during our lifetimes, I would even consider the idea that uh, nation states might go away, or that, you know, there might be less of a control from a taxation perspective by our government, and the uber wealthy might leave and go elsewhere, or that you might feel more affinity for a state Than your actual nation. Those ideas would have seemed kind of, you know, um, anarchist to me maybe. And this book just, just phrased them in a way that I thought was really intriguing for today's world. So that one is a good book to make you think. It doesn't mean you have to agree to it, but it'll make you think.
0: Yeah, it's one on my to read list. And it brings me to ask about a topic that you covered in your newsletter, which was the US potentially in some world, defaulting on its debt. And as someone who isn't in the finance world, what does that mean exactly? And what would that lead to? Could you break that down for us?
1: Yeah, well, you know, the the idea here was that Never before was there has there been a uh, sort of world leader in today's modern time that had a jet debt to GDP ratio that was as high as ours was, one hundred and thirty percent plus. And every time that that's happened, historically, uh, we've essentially seen that that country defaults on its debt. The only instance of that not being true was japan. and um and then then the you know the, the author went on to explain that, well, uh, Japan is different because it was actually in a deflationary cycle already due to the fact that in the U.S., our biggest, you know, the people who use our, our most of our products or clients uh, for the U.S. are other countries. Right. We, we are a big exporter in Japan. The biggest clients for them are themselves. They like, you know, make goods that each other uses. And so for a lot of reasons like this, Japan is a little bit more insulated from inflation. Um, but the part that I found interesting is there was an argument that's rational that we could actually default on our debt. And I've been firsthand in a country that has defaulted, which was uh, Argentina. I think they've probably defaulted on their debt more than they've not. And, um, and what happens is, is relatively scary. Now, in Argentina, I can give you an example, which is that when you go to Argentina, you don't actually go to exchange money at a bank. Typically, you go and exchange money at the Bolsa Negra, which is the black market. And the rate at the bank to the Bolsa Negra, the black market is, it varies, but let's say away from two to 10 to 50 times cheaper on the black market than on the bank. Um, And the reason is because when you default on your debt, what actually happens is that you lose trust. And the only thing that the US has is trust of the world that we will continue to pay our bills and that we are good for it. Um, And so if we lose trust in that, then that could be a pretty significant financial collapse. It's not going to be the end of the world, but it would mean massive inflation, it would mean, uh, you know, We have to have some restructuring of the world's financial currency. I mean, it would be a a big boy, but humans, we're not really prepared to handle that. So like in our head, it's just too big, too much. It's like, I got to pay rent on Tuesday. I don't have time to think about these things. Like, who's going to do that? And so the only thing that I tell people after that is like, what it means for you and me, normal people, is just this is a good time to increase your good debt and increase the assets that you have that are paying you and not a great time probably to keep a bunch of money in cash. Um, and, you know, maybe a decent time to have some backup plans for what you do for a living and increase your revenue streams, which is why I'm so passionate about that.
0: It's heavy stuff. And it really makes you think because it, we're not supposed to think of all the world's problems and a especially our own problems. And now we have them and we have access to them. But it leads me to ask about Bitcoin, right? Because I, it, it seems like that would be a place to store your money. But I've also heard you talk about the potential for Bitcoin to be a, a China and Russia uh, collusion asset. I don't know if that's just a, a, a spark uh, plug, but I'm curious, what are your takes on Bitcoin? And if you think it's a place to park your money in 2021?
1: Well, I have an allocation to Bitcoin um, and I have for a while. I wrote a piece, I don't know, a few months back that basically said exactly what happened to Bitcoin. It's the, the having, you know, Bitcoin again and again is a very volatile asset class and has a huge run up and then it falls. We all know that and it's done that recently. And, you know, those of us who have invested in any sort of volatile investments for a long period of time, it's just a cycle. And if you don't think that it's coming, it's like saying winter's never coming. It's like saying summer's never coming. Nothing. Goes up forever. Now it might have an upward trajectory for all time, like human population, for instance. The you know age that we continue to die at, like, continues to go up. Um, poverty levels continue to go down. You can have these like long cyclical things, but they don't ever go like this. They go like up and down, and up and down, and up and down. And so um, with Bitcoin, uh, you know, I had a funny story that one of my friends was actually you know, talking to uh, a lady of the night in Brazil, which is if you've been to Brazil there, that's very common there. It's part of the culture. And she was saying, you know, uh, she was giving him tips on which cryptocurrency to buy. And that's when he was like, everybody's got to sell. You got to sell right now. This is like the shoe shine boy, you know, during the 20s start, stock market crash, you got to go. So a bunch of us sold out and it turned out he, he was right. It was just funny. Um, but to be, to be frank, I think, Having some assets and things like Bitcoin is great, but you have to remember why you want them. It's a part of a diversification strategy, which is so boring because you could become a billionaire in Bitcoin, which is way more fun. But the truth of it is that unless you're in super early, the billionaire thing is probably not as likely. So put some of your money in things like that, but but not all of it. So you know, I have a percentage just like everybody else, but I probably wouldn't bet the house on it.
0: Yeah, I love what you talk about, boring businesses being the place to, To park money into, to to invest in. Um, But one of the places that isn't boring is weed. And you've spent so much time talking about weed, so much time investing in it. So why did, why were you drawn to weed as a place to invest? Yeah.
1: Well, I really didn't know much about it, which sounds like something I would say to my parents, but happened to be true. And, um, I started investing in cannabis as a nonprofit play first, because we were living in Texas at the time and did a lot of work with veterans who were having trouble with PTSD. And so wanted to get some research into their hands about, you know, can cannabis actually help with PTSD or with hypersensitivity or vigilance or these issues that veterans have. And so uh, we did that. We didn't get it to pass. It's now some of that uh, early work that we did has passed in Texas, which is cool. But um. That was first. So first it was like, Oh, this is a way you can do well for the world through a commercial pursuit. And then it was like, Oh, wait a second. I invested in a few uh, private equity funds and then those funds did really well. And then I thought, man, so you can do well uh, while you're doing really good work for the world as well. And so um, I started investing in cannabis passively at first, which is how I recommend getting into any asset class. Like first, if you want to invest in cannabis, I, or I'll say what I did is you, I went into a fund and when I wanted to invest in Latin America, before I built a biz, big business there, I invested in a couple of Latin funds. Same thing when I wanted to invest in small and medium businesses, I went and invested in some private equity, uh, micro private equity funds. And so that was the first thing I did. Then when we started making some good money in that, I was like, Oh, there's a play here there's a bunch of people who still don't like the space. There's lots of stigma. So that means there's probably an arbitrage opportunity, a chance to make money where like the market thinks it's worth less than what it's really worth. And so um, I started investing in the space pretty heavily. I took on a partner role at a uh, cannabis uh, PE fund, uh, which I now sit on the board of. And, um, And I still think the space is super interesting. Uh, we just have allocated quite a bit of money to that space. And so now it's it's time to diversify to the next asset class.
0: Do you think that psychedelics today are where weed was maybe five years ago?
1: I find psychedelics fascinating. Um, you know, cannabis is really good for chronic pain and for consistent long-term issues. Um, I don't, and I think it's better in many ways than, than alcohol, let's say. And there are a lot of medicinal and wellness related benefits to it. Psychedelics to me are fascinating from a, a hyper uh, medicinal standpoint in that they seem to help acute issues. So they seem to help issues that need to be actually solved or focused upon in, in your mental state. And, uh, You know, cannabis doesn't solve those issues, but it helps the symptoms. So I actually think the two are an interesting pair. Cannabis can help symptom management and, you know, psychedelics theoretically with a lot of these mental health uh, issues seem to have early research that showed they could actually cure them. Um, So I, I, you know, it's early, it's early to tell I pass on a couple great psychedelics companies that I wished I would have invested in, but it's an area I'm going to put more money in, in the coming years.
0: Why did you pass?
1: One of them was a Thai life sciences, which Peter Thiel invested in. And it was just a really high valuation. So when I'm looking at a company, there's usually like two reasons I pass. One is like the company's not good and the founder's not good or something along those lines. And, and the second is the valuation's too high. Most of the mistakes I've made in passing on companies have been that I focused on the valuation. So sometimes like you just, you do pay for what you get. And so um, that's why I passed on that one, but it's too early to to tell they haven't had a liquidity event yet, but looks like that one was a mistake.
0: I want to tie the loop for people because we talked about you with journalism and now you're talking about all this stuff, these crazy terms that I'm like, what does that mean? What does that mean? But so what happened where you go and say, okay, I'm going to start working in finance now. What was that loop that made you say, I want to go where the money is?
1: Yeah, well, it actually was Carmelita. It was realizing that my last name is Sanchez. Her last name is Gutierrez. And I'd live a very different life than she does. And part of the reason is, yes, I'm American and she's Mexican, but that's not really it. There's plenty of wealthy Mexicans who live an incredible life too. The difference is really just socioeconomics. I have the ability to uh, have access to capital, schooling, and, and I come from a very lower middle class family. And so what I realized is, oh, wait a second, we, we really need to understand this one language we all speak, which is money. And if I do that, then I think I can help more people. And I think we can change some of the stuff that was happening to Carmelita as opposed to just tell her story. So that was really the reason. And, you know, what's amazing is like, somebody said that to me the other day, like, oh, you use a lot of fancy terms. I'm like, this is so funny because I, when I started in finance, like I didn't know what a mutual fund was. I didn't know what a stock was. You know, I probably mispronounced everything. Um, I had never even had a credit card. I don't know how that I had a bank account at that. Like, I don't even know anything. Um, and now today, what's amazing is when you, when you get into the world of finance, you realize that that people have lots of fancy terms for things because that means we can charge more money for our services, but we're not curing cancer over here. So, um, you know, it's much less complicated than people think, but you do need to, to spend some time in spreadsheets and math, which can make people feel nervous.
0: Were you intimidated at all that you didn't know what a mutual fund was, or you see all these fancy languages and you're like, what is this? Should I even be here? Did you have any sense of of feeling like you didn't belong at first. And how did you get over that?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I'm scared all the time still. Um, there's still plenty of finance terms I don't understand for sure. Um, but I think the, the real goal is just you do it anyway. And you know, I, I I think there's much truth to the to the statement that, you know, on the other side of fuck it uh is where all the fear goes away. And so I um, you know, with with Vanguard, that's where I first started out. Um, I basically just said, I'm going to try to learn as much as humanly possible. I'm going to take a ton of notes. I'm going to want it more than anybody else does. And I'm going to be really curious and I'm going to tell people when I don't know something and I'm going to kind of get rid of this idea that if I ask a question or I don't know something, it has anything to do with how smart I am, you know, intellect and not knowing something are not at all correlated. They're not the same thing. And so, um, you know, When I went in there, I was just like, well, I, I don't know all of this stuff, but I'm a quick learner and, and I'm going to get after it. And so let's, let's figure it out. And I think that's the thing that I've done throughout most of my career. Also, I mean, I have a personality, which is not great, which is that uh, when, when I've really figured something out, when a business is rolling and going and growing and done is right about when I get bored. So now I know that I have to backfill me. The- and put in new CEOs and operators once we've already figured out all the hard stuff in a business uh, because I really like the hard phase where I know nothing. And then just about when it becomes boring and profitable and easy, I want on to the next thing.
0: So what's an example of that where that happened in your own life?
1: Well, I think my business in Latin America, now my, the business that I ran in Latin America for a long time, now my COO runs that business. I left to go pursue the cannabis uh, fund business. Um, So she is crushing it. My brother works for her. Um, I think we've like left a legacy there and they continue to grow, which is great. Um, and then, you know, same thing with the, uh, with the cannabis company, we got it to a nice level. We were doing a couple hundred million dollars in assets under management. We had a full team built out. We didn't have to do anything any longer on the cannabis fund. We were on our third fund, fifth vehicle. And, you know, right about that time, I was like, all right, it's ready for, you know, I'm, I'm ready to move to the board and I'll help where I can. And, uh, you know, and you guys continue to crush it and, and then, you know, started contrary thinking. So um, I think it's good to know what kind of leader you are. There's a leader who's a turnaround leader who comes in when everything's messed up and there's a ton of problems. They want to flip the business around. There's a startup leader who's really good at the beginning phases of a business. Maybe you can get the business from zero to 1 million or zero to 3 million in revenue. You know, there's the, there's the founder that's amazing at a really long play. Like, I mean, You know Elon Musk, for instance, but even he brings in leaders behind him. Um, So I think you just kind of have to know that about yourself. I know that um, you know I would be much more interested in new businesses that have a challenge than running J.P. Morgan's asset management business in the U.S. Unless there is something wrong, then I might find that interesting.
0: Why do you think that you're so attracted to that beginning hard stage?
1: I think it goes back to like a a personality type. You know, they talk about hunter gatherers versus uh, hunters versus gatherers. And I'm just, I'm definitely a hunter type. I want to go after it. I want to build the business, but you need somebody who is the gatherer, who wants to sow the field, who wants to go and, you know, pick up the crops continuously and probably isn't going to come up with a new crazy product idea or a new way to go to market. They're going to continue to kind of like work on what you have going. Um, And so I always try to have an operator that works with me, and I don't like the term visionary because I think it sounds super self-congratulatory, but I would say like, you know, there's somebody who's sort of going out there and and going through the fire on the ideas, and then there's somebody who doesn't really want to lead from the front on it, um, but knows what to do after the fire has already been put in place and how to take care of it next. And so it's probably a more eloquent way to say that, but most people shouldn't should know which of the two they are and then hire for whatever their weakness is.
0: So one thing you're doing now is you're you're putting yourself out there with a personal brand and online. And that's something that you can't really operate and push away. I'm mean, You can't build a team mm-hmm. around you, but at the end of the day, you have to be the one to produce the content in some capacity. So does that ever worry you?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. The beautiful part about content, and I'm sure you found the same, is that it keeps evolving to wherever you want to go. And so what I like about it is that I can choose what we want to cover. I can choose projects. I can choose individual courses or I can choose, you know, every week is like a little bit of me getting to go off on some bizarre uh, witch hunt and, and find something new. Um, so I think that probably takes me all the way back to my journalism days and that that's what I really like to do. Um, and, and so, but yeah, certainly, I mean, I'm not sure. I think there are some CEOs that want to be in a business forever, and then there are people like me who have really learned and mastered M&A because I know I want to run a business for a period, and then I want to sell it, and I want to let somebody else run it, or I want to take a different position and let somebody else go from the top. So even with contrarian thinking, you'll see us, we went from like my face everywhere to my face, less places and less places and less places. And we'll eventually have other people's faces on there too. And we'll bring in other creators. So it's not just the Cody show. Um, and that I think creates a more legacy business than just, you know, Hey, it's all about me.
0: Yeah. I love that approach. And, and speaking of the Cody show each week, you put out seven to 10 Instagram posts, 50 plus stories, 35 tweets, 12 fleets, 14 LinkedIn posts, TikTok videos, all just for your brand. So I'm curious how you structure your day because even saying that brings a a level of, oh my God, that's a lot to, to Yeah, the table. I got anxious
1: <laughs> hearing that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we're we it's funny. I um because I was just saying today, oh gosh, we're not putting out enough content. We've really got to think about it this way. And uh, but I haven't I have a great team. And you know, what I found is um when you have found your little unique niche and you found your voice and you have something that you stand for, the other people that are supposed to be with you find you. There's a great book by Mike Singer called The Surrender Experiment that um, I lean into a and most of my team, I have never gone out and act, I've never used a recruiter in any of my businesses and I've hired hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, you know, when I was looking for new people to work with me, I just put it out to the newsletter community. Um, you know, I've never actively actively pursued anyone, but what I've found is, you know, these these people get attracted to you, and then they like the mission. They're also tired of the news cycle the way that it is. They want to think contrary, and they want to free themselves in their bank account. So we have a team of people that is really cool that's now kind of come into the contrary and thinking ecosystem, and they each have something that they're responsible for. Um, but you know, I don't think we have it all figured out yet. And for a year, it was just me by myself but now we're kind of getting into a groove that makes me feel good about it. it's really all just, all these businesses are SOPs. It's like, if you can get to the recipe, uh, then it's really easy to recreate every time. And you just follow the recipe, follow the recipe, follow the recipe. Where it gets overwhelming is when you're trying to write the recipe and you've never cooked the thing before. Uh, and you got to fail at a bunch of those recipes first until you get it right.
0: What's the... SOP, the standard operating procedure for hiring someone? Because I know these people come to you, but what are the things you do in the first week or the first month to test out if you and that person are a good fit?
1: Yeah. Well, I pretty much hire only on a project basis. So um, every single time it's like, Hey, try to do this for us. And if you do a good job, let's roll. For the most part, everybody starts out as a contractor so that we can tell if we both like each other. Um, So those are two really big things. And I give very specific projects. Like You know, hey, I want you to go create, you know, two newsletter pieces that you think sound like contrarian thinking. And then I want you to document for me how long it took you to do each of them and how quickly you could turn it around. Um, And so that tells me pretty easily um, if the person's a fit. And usually, before I'll even pay them for something, like I would pay for that project, but before I would even pay for something, I might, you know, ask them to do something little. I just want to test commitment. And so, so many people just want what's given to them today. And I really only want the people that are crazy and think this mission is awesome. And so I would probably for most of them beforehand say like, Oh, you know, you want to come work with us. Okay. Like go look at all of the social media that we do right now, go look at our newsletters and website right now and tell me like three things you think we should do differently. Um, you know, and so that tells me if they're proactive, do they do good without direction? And every time I get into trouble, is when I don't give somebody a project like that or when um, I give too much leeway and direction. Because for most of my teams, they need to be able to do this stuff by themselves. If they want to be have their hand held the whole time, oh my gosh, go work somewhere else.
0: One thing that I really like that you said is you have people do top five, like their top five priorities or the top five things they did the past week and have that done on Monday. And when some people don't even fill that out, that's a sign that it's not a good fit.
1: Yes. I think uh, expectations and scorecards are super, super important. And the other part is like, I know, for instance, for myself, I'll forget even each week um, to look at the scorecard. And so I have to have an agenda for every one of my meetings and every one of my meetings. Now we do it on traction, which is a great operating system. There's it's based on a book. It's called the EOS entrepreneur operating system and the book's called traction. And so every single week we run a meeting on traction, the same exact way. And we add some of our own touches to it first. Like each week we kind of go down a rabbit hole of like crazy ideas. And I want people to bring the coolest ideas they can to the mix. Um, But that keeps us honest. Um, And it really does help to have sort of a framework. So you don't have to think about the small decisions every day.
0: What are some other standard operating procedures, maybe for your own life that you use to guide you?
1: you know, I use an app called way of life every day. And so basically it's a, it's a checklist. It looks like, um, you know, red and green checklists. And every single day you check off, like, did you do it one way or the other? Um, and so some of them are like, was I up today at 6am? Like, yep. Checking that off. Did I work out today? Yes, I did. You know, yesterday. No, I didn't. Um, and, you know, and then my uh, husband is, you know, a former military guy. So he's very detail oriented. And so we even prioritize and rank the way of life uh, app. So like the top three things are most important. If we do those three things and everything else will go by the wayside. Um and, you know, some of the stuff that I'm not perfect at, but we try to do is, you know, when you have a partner and, and family and all of that, it adds these additional complexities. And so we have a check in every night, uh, my husband and I, and it's like, it's called team, um, which is like, first, you're supposed to touch, so you're supposed to hold hand, that's, that's in case you're mad at each other. So it's like, you know, you could be like, you know, fine, we're touching. And then the second one is um, education. What'd you learn today? So it re-stimulates. So you're not having the same conversation with somebody every single day, which is no bueno. And then you have appreciation, like, thank you for doing this for me today, or I appreciate how smart you are or whatever the case may be. And then you have metrics. What could I have done better today? And so I put that in place in our relationship every day. um, And surely we forget sometimes. And then I try to do something similar like that with the, with my employees really open dialogue about, you know, how are we doing? Uh, What are you learning? What do you appreciate about the team? And then what would you like to change about the team? And so those two things, I wouldn't do it every day, that would be annoying. But, you know, each time I have a check in at least once a month with the people on the team, and we try to hit those.
0: What are some of the metrics you and your husband use to see if you're doing a good job?
1: Yeah, so I mean, it would be things like, um, well, we're both really big on our word. So for instance, you know, uh, did I do the things I said I was going to do today? And something else might be the opposite of that, which is, did I say no to the things that I couldn't do today? Like, did I, did I set the right boundaries? Because you don't want to just be a yes man on either side of it. That's really important. Um, also, it might be like, like he's very sweet. So he has something in his, it's like, do do one nice thing for Cody every single day. Like, what have you done? And, and I think that's lovely. And even thinking about that, you could apply that to customers. You could apply that to friends, to, to colleagues. Like what's, what is something that you could do to surprise and delight the people that you say are most important to them, to you every single day. And so if that is your significant other, Like how lovely would that be to delight them some way every day? How lovely would it be to try to delight your customers every day or to try to delight one of your employees? Um, Because at the end of the day, nobody has to stay with us. Employees can go, partners can go. And so how can you make them feel like it's not just monetary? I don't just have to work for you. It's I love, I love working with you. And I love this.
0: You mentioned your husband was in the military and you've written about how he's a Navy SEAL before. I'm curious what you've learned from living with someone like that.
1: Yeah, well, a lot. I mean, he's, he's very, very intelligent, but, um, I wrote a blog post that was like some of his rules for life, which, um, he wrote, I should say. Um, and I sort of, I sort of, uh, you know, I called the game on it. Um, but he, but they were, you know, some of the things I think most from Chris are that, um, I've learned one thing overall, it's, about how to sort of stick to who you are as a person. And I think, you know, in the Navy and especially going through what he went through, you know, you get heckled from all sides. You have incredibly difficult situations present in front of you. And so it 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 sort of sharpens you down or whittles you down into whoever you want to be as a human or whoever you truly are at your core. And so he he really does not care what anybody thinks about him ever. I, and a lot of people say that, but I've never met somebody that's so like that. Like he will wear... Teva's and a tie-dye short shirt and like cut off jorts like to an event that I hold, you know, and and it's got no problem with it. He's really not trying to impress anybody. Um, and I think that's a really cool trait and you just carry yourself different when you think that way. Um, and the second thing I've learned from him is like, if there was a guy who was there for his team and his people Uh, it is him. And so how can you really be in the corner of the people who are most important to you? And because I've done business for so long, I'm pretty good at like building businesses, selling them, focusing on that all the time. And I didn't realize that I was putting to the wayside a lot of like personal relationships, uh, partnerships, friendships. And so um, he's really taught me to lean back into that. And what's been amazing is I used to think that was almost detracting, like, oh, I got to make the phone calls. I got to take time to check in on somebody today. Um, but what what I've realized is those friendships become invaluable. And now I do business with like most of my friends, um, which is incredible.
0: You mentioned getting to know yourself and knowing who you are as such an important part of what you've learned. And so I'm curious, who are you at your core?
1: Big questions today, Danny. Um you know, what I've, I'll tell you who I think I am now. Um, I have found that at least for myself, I still surprise myself all the time. Um, and there were a lot of years in finance where, um, you know, I definitely sheltered who I was and I was a polished up version of it. And it's probably only been in the last like five years, I would say, or something like that, where I've really become confident and comfortable and hey, take it or leave it. This is what you're getting. Um, And so I'd say the biggest thing at my core is that I'm probably a a mixture of a truth truth seeker and a storyteller. And those are the two things that motivate me. Those are the two things that I think I'm pretty good at. Um, And uh, those are the two things that probably I could do all day and lose complete track of time. And I feel like it's why I'm sort of put here on this planet. Um, And if I can seek truth in the right things and tell the right stories, then it can be pretty impactful for other people. So that's, I think what I would say I am at my core. Um, and the cool part is in today's world, you can actually make money doing that, which is awesome. You can live your life doing that um, while also having a pretty incredible, incredible life.
0: So what happened five years ago where you said to yourself, oh, I'm going to be more like myself or more in touch with myself? What happened?
1: Uh, That was when, well, I guess it was more than five years ago now, six or seven. Uh, That was when I first got out of sort of what I would consider Wall Street, like heavy, heavy finance, where, you know, even just the uniform, right, of finance, which is suits and uh, stilettos and, you know, your hair up and not so long and all of these things. um, That really doesn't fit who I am. And so, you know, it took, it actually took me really getting into it with the CEO that I worked with at the time. Um, and I didn't like the way that they were running the business. I thought they were, I thought ethically the way they do it and things were a little wolf on wall street. And so I, um, I finally got to a point where I just told them like, you know, I, I don't, I don't believe you're doing things the right way. I think this is like, super short-term focused, and you know, going forward, you're going to have regrets on this front. And I think it's super hypocritical. Um, he was very religious, so I was like, I can't marry these two things that you're doing. And um, and so at that point, I walked away from what would have been a, a very very big uh, partnership and uh, and passed it on to somebody else to run. And from that point, I've kind of never looked back. And I think when you realize that you don't, you don't have to do business with people you don't align with, and it, and it doesn't mean that they're bad and I'm good. It just means that we weren't right for each other. We didn't have the same energy or vibe. And instead, you could actually do business only with people that you really learn from and respect and feel the same way about you. And if anybody isn't on that level, it's actually hugely impactful in a positive way to just say, I'm sorry, this doesn't work for me. And I wish you all the best and good luck. Um, But you know, this, we don't do business like this. Um, And so the second I learned that, everything got so much easier and it's really continued from there. I've had mishaps, don't get me wrong. I've gotten with wrong partnerships before. I've had clients that I don't dig uh, and probably don't dig me. But um, every time I get rid of that, I'm like, oh man, now we're 10X in the business again.
0: Hmm. And what do you think made you so confident to state your opinions that this isn't this doesn't align with my ethics or I don't want to go down this route? Because that's a big decision that I'm sure a lot of people would have floundered on or gone back and forth on. Was it a difficult decision? And what was your thought process in that moment?
1: One, I think it helps if you're hyper-competent. Like I made sure that it wasn't that I was not good at my job and making excuses for myself. I made sure first that it wasn't that, um, it was hard. And so I did a lot of self-checking, um, which you need to do when you're not in, in touch with your gut yet fully. And I definitely wasn't at that time. And so at first I was like, is this me? Is this me? Is this me? Is this me? Tons of self-reflection, which is great. Cause then you're like, Oh, Hey, there I am. That's who I am. Okay. I, I remember you. Um, but then after I had done that for a while, uh, I usually go to some like trusted individuals that are what I call my board of advisors. They don't really know it, but these are the people that I think have really strong moral compasses who I aspire to be in some aspect of their life. And I would kind of tell them the story like, hey, I'm struggling with this. It doesn't feel aligned. What do you think? And once I had gotten five or seven of their opinions, it eventually gets to a place. One of my mentors described it to me as um, like a barometer you know, how a barometer can get so cold until it freezes, right? It won't, even a barometer won't be able to, to, to move anymore. And so I think you in your business life and career or whatever, you eventually get to a place where you're like, Oh, I just can't anymore. Then anything past that you're like, I'm out. And so usually that has to happen for me before I will jump. It's again, been after sort of the last five to seven years that I've finally been able to catch it early and say like, nope, this isn't working for me and I have to have the tough conversation. But I'm never comfortable with it. I don't like difficult conversations. I've just realized it's so painful and so much time wasted if you don't have them.
0: How have you gotten better at catching it early?
1: Um, Well, I do a lot of writing. Writing helps a ton. So I journal, especially if I have the same issue. So pretty much every day I'll journal a little bit. Like this is irritating me in some way. Why is that? And then I usually ask myself, what are you doing? How are you capable, culpable in the problem? And very often it's that I haven't had the tough conversation with the person. So I'm like, this is annoying me, this is annoying me, this is annoying me, but I haven't done anything to fix it. Um, and so journaling helps, then reanalyzing how often I'm having this issue. Um, and I, I think those are probably the two, the two biggest ways. Also, the more like it's a little woo-woo, but. I do a decent amount of meditating now, and I try to clear a decent amount of my day to not do anything in. And that will tell me pretty quickly if I'm focusing on the right stuff or if people are interrupting or things are interrupting and how I feel about that happening.
0: How did meditation enter your life?
1: I have a crazy friend. Her name is Stacy. Hi, Stacy, if you're listening. And uh, I lived in Dallas years ago, and she dragged me to this transcendental meditation thing. And she convinced me because she was like, the top hedge fund managers do it and the top. And I was like, well, I want to be the top. So I'm going to go do this. And then we got there and it was in this weird strip mall and it smelled kind of funny. And it was a tiny room with people who were talking about energy and crystals and all this stuff that I thought sounded absolutely bonkers. But they taught us how to do it. They gave us a word, which you get in transcendental meditation. And then we would meditate together. And I was just blown away at how this chattering that's in my mind all the times. And most of our minds all the time kind of shut up for a second. And then I was amazed at how much clearer the day was. It was like, now, if I do my three things in the morning, which are, you know, get up at six at least uh, meditate and work out Everything's easier throughout the day, which is wild. So those three things could take up two and a half hours, but somehow I get more than two and a half hours back when I do those three things. And so it was total rationality that helped me. Um, and uh, and I'm forever thankful to Stacey.
0: Mm. And well, how long ago was that?
1: That would have been, you know, right around the same time with the, with the partnership deal. I was living in, in Dallas at the time. So um, maybe that was part of what helped also.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. So you've rubbed shoulders with people who have done human trafficking and drug smuggling, not to say that you've done either, but covered those in journalistic sense. And and also with billionaires, you've seen a wide array of people. So what are the commonalities you found?
1: Well, um, I think for successful people, um, there's uh, typically there's like a little bit of a magnetic pull that you have. It's um, if you're around people that are in the top of their game, you can kind of feel it. It's, it's an interesting uh, characteristic. And um, I've also found that they're very, they're usually not the loudest in the room. um, And they're usually, uh, they're usually one of the most given, which has surprised me a lot. So I think the commonality from the top in your game bad side of the coin or a good side of the coin is that. It's that they can convince you of almost anything. They're very charismatic. they're not typically very loud. and then when you ask things of them, um, they are really giving in most instances if you do it if you do it well. Um, and, and I think the other thing that I've noted is like everybody wants to feel important. Everybody in the world, the most important thing is that you can make them feel seen. And if you can make people feel seen, which my method is typically like questions and being really curious and being really with them when I'm there, um, then you can befriend just about anybody uh, because it's actually rare how few people listen. And so that superpower is one worth honing.
0: Mm. So you've asked so many questions and questions are one of your superpowers. So what makes a good question?
1: First, I think it should be tailored, like exactly like you did to open the interview. You know, it's a specific question. It's not the same question you use every time. It's not like, tell us how you got here. Tell us about your background, right? It's it's something specific, which is actually, I don't, I, it's okay if you start with the tell me about your background because it's natural. It actually feels risky somehow to ask the right questions. You know, like it feels risky to feel like, tell me about Carmelita. And then if I'm like, Who? <laughs> what are you talking but Then you're embarrassed. And it's like, you know what? So um, it's risky and it feels scary to ask the right questions is always a good indicator that you're on the right path. Um, and I think the, the next important thing I found with questions is you have to be generally, genuinely curious about them. You have to want to know the answer. And so in order to want to know the answer, you have to think pretty hard about it. Imagine you get 60 or 90 seconds with anybody. What is the one question that you'd really want to ask them that they would be able to give you an interesting enough answer in? And usually they're not hyper general. You know, it's like, um, you know, you don't want to get in front of a billionaire and say, can you tell me how you made your money? They're like, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Like a lot of different things, hard work. Um, You know, instead, you know, you might say, Um, I'd love to know what you're obsessed about right now and what you can't stop reading learning or talking about. Um, Something very specific. Uh, And what that is going to do is it's going to make them not want to shut up about it. They're going to want to tell you more. Um, And those to me are some of the secrets secrets of good question asking.
0: Yeah, the best way to be interesting is to be interested. And I want to go back to the the billionaire and the people at the top of their field, you said there's something you could feel about them that you just can tell. And I'm curious what you think that is. What are they rating? You? What can you feel personally when you are around some of these high level individuals?
1: Um, well, I think for a couple things. When you want to get more or have more time with the super successful, uh, one of the worst things you can do is ask for general things like will you be my mentor? How did you make all your money? Um, you know, can you fund my deal? Um, you know, will you you know hire me? Those are those are too broad and they're too common. So instead, I try to go really micro. I try for like very small micro asks because the second thing that's great about being interesting is also being valued. And so, um, you know, with I have a very like one really, really wealthy friend that's uh, a billionaire that runs a hedge fund that I sit on the board of. And, um, you know, every time I'm with him, his mind is it's, he's beautifully minded. So he's, he's always spinning on things. But I'll usually ask him a very targeted question like, you know, Alex, I'm concerned about what's happening right now with inflation. Um, You know, I was thinking that it might make sense to do X and Y and Z. Can you talk to, are those bad ideas? And what are you doing today to remedy that? So like hyper-specific, as opposed to like, Alex, what are you investing in right now? And can you tell me so I can just mimic your portfolio? That would be like a lazy question. Um, So that's first. And that charismatic thing, I think it just comes from, again, going back to the, when you're confident in who you are and you are confident in your competence, your ability to actually execute on things, Um, You realize you don't need a lot from people. Now you can want a lot from people or, you know, it could be really useful to have people around you. Um, But it is this feeling of, hey, you know, I'm not really here to take anything from anybody. If somebody, you know, I'm happy to give, but I don't really need to take. Um, and that just gives off a a different error. Uh, and I think it's the same with, you know, how some people come off as a little thirsty or, you know, they, they want a little bit too much from people. You won't find that very often at the top. In fact, the most successful people I know, even when they really want something from somebody, they'll always slow game. They'll go circuitous. They'll really wait on it. They're very, very seldom the aggressive pushers.
0: Mm. One thing I've noticed is you've seems like you've cultivated such a network of people who like trust and respect you. What advice would you give to a 22 year old right out of college to cultivate that network over the next 15 years of their life?
1: Yeah, um, I wish I had done that more when I was younger, because it is I mean, there's a great post by Trung uh, T fan who's on Twitter. Did you see that about uh, Elon and um who, or who was it? Yeah. I think it was, it was anyway, I think it was a group of people at PayPal and who they eventually put in as their CEO. And, um, they were talking about how, uh, the, Oh no, it was Google, Larry, Brennan, Sergey, how the person that they eventually Eric Schmidt, who they eventually put in as CEO. The reason that they put him in is because they parted with him at Burning Man and they really liked him. And so like, I would say one, never underestimate the value of being likable. Um, the value of being likable is incredibly powerful. And so, um, I would start with that. When you're young, you know, a lot of times people who are older, they see themselves in you. If you're a young gun and you're a hustler and you're gonna go after it and they wanna help you and they wanna fix their old mistakes through you. So if you can be really likable to them and say like, again, micro asks, how would you do this tiny thing? What happened to you here? Can you tell me about this specific time in your life? Um, you can really cultivate sort of these uber successful humans, especially the ones that aren't public. It's, it's very normal for youngsters to want to go after big public people and get close to them because fame seems interesting. Um, but I would actually, I would tend towards those who aren't very public or famous outward speaking um, because they have fewer people going after them and they're more willing to give you time. And you can learn a ton from humans who aren't in the public eye.
0: Okay, so you have someone who's not in the public eye. You find their email through some crazy means. What what are you saying in that subject line? What are you saying in that email to get their attention and to get their interest in you as a twenty two year old who's just has nothing going for them? Let's say because you just graduated college. What are you What are you saying to that person?
1: Well, first, if I could, I would try to get away to them warm. Um, So, you know, with LinkedIn and social media everywhere, there's usually a way where you could triangulate like, okay, um, my brother went to school with this guy who went to school with his daughter, or, um, you know, uh, somebody's an assistant at the company that he works at. So the first thing I would probably do is I would try to like use my immediate network first and get good at it first with people that you could actually touch. And so that might be like, you know, if you live in a small community, it might be like, how do I go and meet the guy who owns most of my local town? You know, how about the guy that owns all the grocery stores? And I might start like networking my way with owners, because if I build, if I builders build, right, like, they can't help it. And so if you start networking with people that are in your immediate geographic proximity, you can always start with, oh, I live down the street, or I live over here. And like, you know, I saw that you had a newspaper outside of your door. And so like, I brought it up to the door and I wanted to introduce myself. I'm Andy and I live over there. And like, I just love your house. It's incredible. And I wanted to actually ask you like, like, what do you do for a living? Cause I think I want to be you when I grow up, you know, like that's probably where I would go. And then I would take it to the next level. Then after you get your network of people that are networked locally Towards you, where you can shake hands, look them in the eye, then I might start trying to triangul- triangulate to other people. So then I might start saying, "Okay, like who else do you know, Mister Owner of said business that I should talk to?" Like I just want to glean intel. And if you're thoughtful enough with those first intros, then they will naturally give you more. And you know, there's really like there's very few areas where you can't do that in the U.S. Like this wouldn't work in India. Um, but even if you're living in a really poor segment of Detroit, um, let's say you could always go to the local university and start having a conversation with professors there. And then you could ask to talk to the dean and then you could say, who else could I talk to like dean? And, you know, you could tell your story about like I live in the worst part of Detroit and I'm trying to expand my network outside of, you know, the, the people that are on my block, because they're not helpful to me. Um, And that is so rare that in person contact that I think you'd be amazed at what would happen.
0: You know, the what comes to mind is the saying you are the person, the five people around you're the combination of those people. Did you ever find yourself personally in a situation where you weren't happy with the five people around yourself? And then what do you do to find those five people and create a different five? So you were elevated?
1: Yeah, I mean, all the time, I think that's a constant um, it's a constant move. and it, it's not always that they're bad people at all. It's just that you might be progressing faster than they have or, or they might be choosing a different segment of life than you. Um, and so you know, we recently spent a lot of time in San Diego and I found that the builders of things that I wanted to be surrounding uh, surrounded by weren't in San Diego. And so now we don't spend as much time in San Diego. We're in Austin much more. And that's purposefully. It's for the humans, not the heat wave that is here as opposed to the waves in, in the ocean. It's my what my priority is, right? Um, or simultaneously, when I was in finance, I had a great group of other corporate um, you know, ladder climbers who are smart, went to great schools, but they wanted to be CEOs of finance companies and I didn't. And so I think I remember I went to SumoCon, which is Noah Kagan's conference for AppSumo and Sumo like maybe 10 years ago when I was still in finance and I just signed up for it. And then I emailed him cold and then I sent him like a weird t-shirt or something about tacos. And he was like, what are you hitting on me? I was like, no, I'm married. I'm like, but I want to understand this internet thing. So I'm going to come to the conference and like, thanks for throwing it. Um, and then I ended up, you know, meeting a ton of interesting people there and I had no unique ins besides that I was going to pay 300 bucks for a conference. Um, so that's what I would probably do.
0: Mm. <laughs> it seems like you're just so willing to put yourself out there in so many different situations. Uh, was that something you've built or is that something that has just always been in your life?
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think from a young age, um, Yeah, I grew up in Arizona, where there was a lot of um, outdoor activities, you know, I was hunting and camping and fishing from a young age. And so first of all, you see life and death firsthand, you learn to kill things and what that feels like. Um, And I think that's really important, because when you see life and death firsthand, you realize like, nothing else matters, like, oh, this guy's going to tell me to go pound sand. Okay, nobody's gonna die, right? And so there was that. Um, and then also being a journalist, you got really used to rejection. I mean, that's why I think you guys are so good at it actually, because think of how you used to it, re- maybe not with Tinder now. this is that's interesting actually, but historically, like i always felt bad with how girls turn down guys you know i was like no beat it you suck get out of here like like so aggressive and um but it's actually beautiful for men because then you learn like okay whatever on to the next one thanks blondie you know and um it becomes not that big of a thing and so I do really push people to like go get rejected as much as possible early when it doesn't matter, because you, then, then you don't need safe spaces and you don't need, you know, like uh, w- to walk around in a bubble all day because you realize that words are not going to hurt you and that, you know, it says more about the other person than it says about you and you can keep going your way. Um, and I, I wish we could do that for a lot more people because I think it would really help their mental health too.
0: Mm. You bring up safe spaces and, you know, today it seems like people are so afraid to say what they actually feel. And it seems like that's why your newsletter has found such successes because you're willing to, to state the things that are on your mind. But why do you think that people are so scared to say what they feel today? And, and what can we do about it if we should do anything about it?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm definitely opinionated on this front, but, um, I, I mean, free speech is so critical. I've been in Venezuela and Argentina and, um, you know, Bolivia and Uruguay and places where you don't have the ability to say what you think. And it is so important that we keep that and that we protect it, even for the people that we hate everything that they're saying, um, because who is to say what is hateful to say and what is not? And the second that we decide that there is some governing body that will allow us to say one thing or another is is a slippery, slippery path. I was in a taxi yesterday with a gentleman who had just come over from Cuba. And um, he was telling me his Cuban accent about how he said it specifically. He said, in Latin America, it all starts with lindas palabras, which means beautiful words. And he's like, and it ends in death. And while that's aggressive, uh, it is True. Um, oftentimes, like the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so um, I think it's crucial that uh, we don't get con- so concerned with what people say, but we focus much more on what they do and uh, and what the implications are for the things that they do. And so, um, so I mean, I-, I think the way to get more kids used to this is I think there should be more debate clubs. I think we have to push back, back mercily against this belief that if somebody has an idea we don't like then we don't like the human we mm-hmm. need to divorce those two things they're very different um and I think you're starting to see a lot of people come out and speak in this regard um, but but there's you know the universe loves the vacuum so if nobody comes out and says the hard things um, then there will be no pushback and the cool part is for the people that will come out and speak truths truth is cut in. Truth is loud. And so when people hear something that strikes a tone, um, you have an incredible opportunity to be heard more widely when you speak truth. And so um, even though it's scary, because many people will not like it, and they will react to it, that's because it's loud, and it's cutting. And so I hope that people young people realize that, that they have a power because there's so many people afraid to speak it good, be the one that does. And then watch how many people you attract.
0: Mm. And so what can we do other than debate clubs and, and just telling children that, you know, you need to be able to speak your mind? What do you suggest?
1: I would say speak up when you see uh, people shutting down others in front of you. Don't be quiet in those instances. Stand up for people's right to speak one way or the other, regardless of what you think. And, you know, don't be quieted by the masses just because everybody is saying that something is right does not mean that you should go work for companies that actually push for free speech instead of mandate you to say things. Don't spend your dollars at companies that mandate you to do X or they kick you off for Y, Um, you know, don't be on platforms. Like I just got off of Substack because, you know, of a big issue. that's not dissimilar to this. Um, and I would say and then follow and give money to people who you feel are spreading the word too, and build companies that allow the same thing. And then when you go employ people, allow them to speak, even if you don't disagree or even if you disagree with them. The only thing and the, the other thing that I would say is like, be really careful of division. So like anytime somebody wants to separate me and you because I'm a woman and you're a man. My gut reaction is, nope, we're both humans. How could we not have that situation happen? Anytime somebody wants to separate me because I'm Hispanic and maybe you're not, uh, I'm really careful on that uh, because I think we all have much more in common than the melanin in our skin uh, or than one organ of the many organs that are in our bodies. Um, And so I'm really not very big on identity politics. I think you should push back hard on that.
0: What happened with Substack? Why did you get kicked off of the platform, Cody?
1: Yeah, well, Substack um, apparently requires exclusivity, so um, they uh, they they kicked us off the platform. Well, they actually didn't kick us off; they deleted the account and put up this giant spam violation deal. And I think it's because our newsletter is pretty successful. Now we're we're you know we have a pretty big audience. We're you know it's profitable um, and. Uh, and all of that revenue was not running through them. Some of it was, but not all of it. And so, you know, just like any other platform, um, they all start out really nice to the creator. And then typically, if history is to be our guide, the creator is the one that sort of falls off at the end. And so, um, what I realized with Substack is, you know, I, I have a decent platform on Twitter. And so the only time I got a response is when I put out sort of a, a, tre- a thread saying, like, never do this mistake that I did. And then they finally responded and you know reopened my account and whatever. And now, hey, everybody makes mistakes. So I have no idea. Maybe this was a total mistake on their behalf. But I am definitely watching it, and I'd love to see them put out some sort of statement that they're not going to kick creators off without warning, and that they're not going to, uh, and that they're going to do redirects for the site when a creator leaves. Because right now, if you're creating on Substack, you have both of those risks they could kick you off at any moment, and they could not redirect you to your new site. And that is just wrong entirely. Um, they can take whoever whoever they want off their platform, um, but then they need to make sure that they say upfront that that's what they're going to do. Otherwise, I think they're misleading creators.
0: Yeah. And you talked about the problem of, of putting your audience on someone else's platform. But at the same time, it feels like you need to do that with Instagram and and Twitter and LinkedIn and you're on all those platforms. So how do you think about that juxtaposition of needing the platforms to have your own audience but also not being dependent on them?
1: It's hard these days. I mean the only thing that I can say is diversify. People told me in the beginning like double down on one platform and go hard and I was like no. I don't double I don't I don't double down on only one platform in stocks, I don't do it in private companies, I don't do it in my income streams. I'm not doing it with this business. Um, and so I would say, you know, pick three. For me, it's Twitter, Instagram, and now I'm dabbling with TikTok. Those are like the three platforms that I'm paying attention to now. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm like bigger there than I am on TikTok. For sure. I think there's like three people that follow me on TikTok because they are brand new. Um, but uh, but I think it's a growing platform I'm interested in. So your your distribution forces pick you know a couple and beyond them. But then for the, anything that you can absolutely own, like an email. Own it outright. Don't go on another platform that has a negative incentive for you. Um, And so Substack is that. Uh, That's why we moved to WordPress and we have a backup of all of our emails located on MailChimp as well. So theoretically, like those could kick us off too, but they're not. Substack is interesting in that, um, first of all, they curate content. So they're a media company. That makes me nervous. Um, Second of all, they have this... uh, Instead of alignment where they want uh, your products to flow through their interface because they make money on it. Instagram, Twitter, TikTok are all completely open architecture and they don't make money that way. So those are my thoughts.
0: Hmm. Going in a completely different direction, Cody, just from hearing you speak for the last, I don't know, hour and a half we you're talking about the importance of free speech and the importance of speech, but it's, it's easier to do when you yourself are a great speaker and a great communicator. Mm-hmm. What tips or what would you say to someone who wants to improve as a speaker or communicator?
1: One, it sucks, and you just have to do it, uh, even when you're when you're scared by it. Um, the beautiful part is, these days, I don't think you have to. Um, you don't have to put yourself out there personally. I mean, one of the, there's like a huge account on TikTok and Twitter. It's called Mister Four to Eight. And his face is nowhere. His name is nowhere. And, you know, he has millions and millions of followers. It's, um, but it's, and he talks about stocks and investing, but without his face on it. So there, there are a lot of ways, maybe you're a great cartoonist. And you want to put your cartoons online instead of um, instead of you know your voice. Maybe you're an incredible coder, so you want to build something and put that out, in, out into the world, and then allow other people to be on it. So whatever your your unique available your your unique ability is, um, it doesn't have to mean it's your face. Half the time, I wish my entire brand wasn't so public, um, but it is one of my skills is like you know actually speaking publicly. Um, so that's probably how I would do it. And, um, and these days, like, you don't have to be a creator in the internet sense um, to, to push free speech. Some of the most influential people I know do it behind closed doors. They, you know, they bring together other people to speak. They might go and work with, like, city council behind the scenes. You know, they might be a fundraiser for other initiatives that they care about. Um, so there are a lot of ways to play the game. I would say the one thing that I don't think you should do is uh, be completely silent in either actions or words.
0: Hmm. In doing research for this conversation, I found out that you keep a note in your phone that says, am I being productive or just active? Am I inventing things to do to avoid the important? I'm curious if there's anything else you have in your phone that you remind yourself of often other than the way of life app. Um, and yeah, I thought yeah. that was just such an interesting way to, to remind yourself of the important questions.
1: I have the memory of a goldfish. Um, so I have to remind myself lots of different places. Um, I'm pretty much a slave to my calendar. And I think the other thing is I, um, well, in the morning, I'm really, I've been working on this book forever, Danny, that I've just got to eventually finish. And um, and I love writing. So it's not that I'm not, you know, writing on it. I'm just a dabbler and a tinkerer and we keep messing around with it. So on my book every day is like, you know, write the damn thing. Mm-hmm. um and uh, and then my husband always gives me uh crap because all of my um reminders for like you know an alarm every day or whatever all have like little pep talks on them that I'll change every now and again um so yeah i get pretty cheesy with all that stuff i haven't really done the i do have these by my desk i haven't really done the like put it on the notebook but i think i need to Lately, I've been, I use this thing called, well, I have it here in front of me, but it's called the, um, what is this called? The full focus planner. And it basically like does the, the three big things that you need to do each day, your other tasks. It has like a little area where I like to write out explicitly what I'm going to do each hour of the day and then notes um, but I haven't been as great lately at getting to my big three. I've been letting other people control my day. So I think I'll probably slap a big note that basically says, like, big three or die, sometimes. <laughs> in that regard. Regards.
0: What do your alarms say that are cheesy?
1: Oh, God. Now we're going to get really, really uh, embarrassing here. Like, one's like, crush it today. Um, and then another one says, harder I work, luckier I get. And then another one says, you will be so happy you did this. That's my workout one. Um, and then the other ones don't say anything. Um, but yeah, so I usually throw different quotes on there. I also keep a quote journal, which is helpful to me. Um, just I like copy words, phrases that I like and keep them for later. It's a little bit of my, the only thing I hoard, I think is words.
0: Any ones you'd like to share?
1: Um, have you ever read the book of Dune?
0: No, have not.
1: You're going to have a library of homework at the end of this. Um, Well, Dune's one of my favorite books. um, And he's, Frank Messiah is his name. And um, I'm sorry, Frank Herbert is his name. And he, the second book is called Messiah from Dune. Um, But what's cool about it is it's a fiction book. They actually say that Star Wars was based on uh, Dune. And and you'll see a lot of similarities between the two if, if you read it. But he has some incredible quotes in there so I can like pull up some of them. Um, But most of them are about um, how we lose our um, edge by not having suffering in our life. I would say that's like the overarching issue. Um, And so I like some of the ones like kill the monster when it's small. I think that's a really good one. Um, and then he also talks about, there's one that he talks about that's like, um, can't remember the exact phrasing, but it's, it's his most famous one that's called, uh, fear is the mind killer. Um, and, and there's a paragraph in there. If you Google fear is the mind killer, there'll be lots of stuff that comes on on it, but it's basically like, you know, fear is the mind killer. I will not fall prey to fear. I will recognize it and allow it to pass through me. Fear is the mind killer. And, um, and that's probably something I recite to myself when I'm doing physically scary things. Like if I'm hiking a mountain or something or surfing, it's a big wave, I'll kind of recite that and be like, get over, it. get over it. Just go do it.
0: I love it. And with the, uh, suffering element of it, how do you add suffering to your day or or to your week or year?
1: I mean, I, I don't think I any longer have to add too much to my day. I'm pretty good at getting up early, uh, eating things that are healthy for me, doing a really hard workout. I'll switch up my program quite a bit. I just got a, a physical trainer actually this month, uh, cause I kind of want to up my game there. Um, and I'm pretty good at working too much. A little bit of what I have to do now is, learn that I don't have to suffer all the time and like enjoy life and go for a walk. Like that might be nice. Um, and so it's all about balance. Right. Uh, but to add, but I do try to add some really hard physical things, at least a couple times a year. So I just went and hiked a big mountain and I don't like heights and I don't like the cold and it was very high and it was very cold. And so the whole thing was not particularly my jam. Um, but I did it anyway. And so I think, you know, even, and maybe you can't, afford to go or it's too much, you know, uh, time off or whatever to go hike a big glacial mountain. Um, but that might just be like getting up super early one day and going and hiking whatever mountains nearest to you in the morning before work, or it might be going and sprinting up the local like hill that you have that you would never normally sprint. Um, because what happens when you do those things is you realize one, you didn't die and two, you're stronger than you think. And, um, and so we probably add one of those to our list every quarter, or at least twice a year. And what you'll find is after a while, you crave it, it becomes part of something that you want and allows you to achieve more and more and more. There's some, I'm sure eventually they'll tell us there is some absolutely scientific truth to the fact that your mind is correlated to your physical body.
0: 100%. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful way to wrap it up. Thank you, Cody, for coming on the podcast. Where can people find more from you?
1: I think the best spot is contrarianthinking.co. That's a newsletter. It's free. Sign up, argue with me, Uh, or uh, Cody Sanchez at uh, Twitter or Instagram.
0: And the newsletter is really, really great. I love it. So I'll put those below. Thank you for, for coming on. And I appreciate it tremendously.
1: It was awesome.
0: Thank you, as always, for listening into the final seconds. It means the world to me. I'm so grateful for your attention and the fact that you made it to this point in the episode means so much to me. So really, thank you. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And if you got any value from this episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with someone who you think would enjoy it. That's all for me. Hope you have a great rest of your day and I'll see you guys in the next one. Peace.